It's from Joel 2, verses 28 to 32. The day of the Lord. And afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and bellows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to, to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And every, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Revelation 1 to 3. The, re the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the word of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because it's time to near. Amen. Carol, that was great. Colin, could you bring a second reading? Revelation 4, verses 1 to 11, the throne in heaven. After this, I looked... And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was a lion, the second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. 
Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the, four, 24, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Thanks, Colin. Let's start with a, a small illustration. I have here a straw. Now I've got a short straw. Now I've got the shortest straw imaginable, which is kind of what it felt like I had when I looked at what the readings were this week. I think we might need to pay closer attention to when the Willits are planning their holidays next time. I sort of said before, I've spent a lot of time this last week or more worrying about what I was going to speak about. Um, I'm incredibly grateful for the fact that all through the E50, the men's group on a Tuesday night have been kind of a week ahead. So they sort of discuss, they discussed Revelation last Tuesday, which meant I could go and pinch all the best ideas. So apologies to the men who were there, because you've probably had a lot of this already. One of the difficult things was deciding what to pick, because... The way we've done it, you know, there's five readings in Revelation and there's one that's highlighted as the one that if you can't read all five, then read this one. It was four chapters in itself. And I thought, well, I can't, I can't ask Colin to read four chapters. I know I always get Colin to read a lot, but I can't ask him to read four chapters of Revelation. And then Vanda lent me the, the DVD that the, the junior church are using, which caused great confusion to Ethan because he came down one morning after I'd watched it the night before and it was on the coffee table and he said to me, Daddy, you've got a new movie. <laughs> yeah. It's the same as the one in church. It's about God. But one of the things it said um, is that Revelation isn't really a book where you get stuck into the detail. It's a, revelation where, it's a, it's a book where you look at the big picture. I was, as an aside, I was in a meeting on Friday that was a bit 
difficult about a project I'm working on, and there was a guy there who kept talking about seeing the bigger picture, and if he'd said it one more time, I think I could have cheerfully throttled him. But there we go. <laughs> um, today we're going to look at the bigger picture of Revelation. Um, it, can, it, was, it was very helpful, that, because it, it kind of gave me license to not worry about which bit to pick, and I thought, actually, maybe it would be more helpful to do a bit of an overview of the whole book rather than pick on. So we're going to do the whole, revela- whole, whole of Revelation in 20 minutes. We'll see. Set your watches to stunned. What time's kick off? Three o'clock. I've got longer. I thought I only had till one. I guess the first thing is just an overview of the book and where it came from. It was written by John, it says. So then you go, great, John who? And people aren't quite sure. There's a school of thought that says that it was written by the same John as wrote John's Gospel. John the, John the Evangelist, St. John, he of the ambulances. But other people say maybe it wasn't, maybe it was written by someone else called John. To which the first people say, yeah, but which other John would have been well known enough in church circles at that time to just say, John. And that's the main, one of the reasons why a lot of people think it was written by John the Apostle. Because any other John would have probably had to say, John the brother of so-and-so, or John the such-a-buddy. John just said, John, it's me, John. <laughs> also, it was probably written around about 90 A.D., John would have still been alive, albeit pretty old. It was written approximately 50 years after Jesus had ascended back to heaven and had said, I'm coming back, and I'm coming back soon. The church was going through a time of persecution. So one of the reasons why it's a difficult book to understand is because it's written in symbols. Partly because... If someone else who wasn't really meant to read it had found it, they wouldn't have understood what it meant, but the churches would have understood. We'll come back to that in a sec. It was 50 years after Jesus had gone and he said he was coming back any day, or that's how they expected it. So they were living in in an anticipation that at any moment Jesus was going to come back and sort everything out. Now the closest analogy I could think of to that was 1966. Partly because some of you will know the song, Three Lines on a Shirt, 30 Years of Heart. It's now 48 Years of Heart and Growing. 48 years, roughly the same spell of time. England won the World Cup in 1966. And at every World Cup since, whether with justification or not, depending on your point of view, there's been a thought of, maybe this year's our year again. Maybe we'll win again. But the longer it goes, the more people start to go, we're never going to win this again, are we? We're going to be like the only country with one star on our shirt. And maybe that's how the church was feeling. They go through spells of going, maybe Jesus is going to come back now. I've seen things happening and she's definitely coming back. And then they look, but it's been 50 years. Is he ever coming back? I once got asked when I was... A lot younger, perhaps a lot more foolish, I don't know. 
whether it was a question around do you, do you know do you think Jesus will ever come back it's been so long and whatever and it was kind of like I, I really believe he will come back I just can't believe he hasn't I can't I, I'd struggle with the fact that it's been 2,000 years but there we go and the Bible says a thousand years is like a day to God so he's probably not noticed so the church I've digressed the church there's a surprise the church was living in a time of thinking maybe this year's our year Maybe this year's it. Oh no, we've been knocked out in the first round again. Sorry. The, ch- the church was thinking, any day now, any day now. At the same time, suffering incredible persecution. It was around the time, it was at the time of the Roman Empire. Christians being thrown to lions and all that kind of thing. Although I believe Christians weren't actually thrown to lions. But they were crucified and persecuted and martyred. It was also written in a period between 200 BC and 100 AD where there were a lot of apocalyptic writings. And if you want to know more about apocalyptic writings, go to Dave Thurston's house group when they'll be looking at the Apocrypha. There you go, Dave. No pressure. (laughs) The apocalyptic writings had a particular kind of pattern. A lot of them were written under a, a pseudonym. So if it was me writing it, I would pretend that I was someone from the Old Testament, probably a well-known character, and I would write it from their point of view. And then what I would do is I would make predictions of things that had happened between now, when I'm writing it, and when that person lived. And being sensible, I would predict things from back then that had already happened, and I'd get it right. So that when I then read other predictions into the future, you'd read it and go, gosh, this guy must know what he's talking about because look at all these things he's predicted that have come true and look at what's not happened yet. What he says must be, must be right, must be true because look, look at his track record. Isn't it good? They used a lot of symbology. They talked about the end of days, the end of time. And they were rich in Old Testament references. And Revelation fits into that. It's an apocalyptic writing. But it's different from the rest. And that's what we had in our first reading that Carol read to us. John starts by kind of setting out his credentials. First of all, he doesn't say, I'm Moses or Noah or Nebuchadnezzar or whoever else. He says, I'm John. John is writing this. So you start by saying, well, okay, so it's, it's, an, it's an apocalyptic writing, but he's not writing as if he's someone from the Old Testament. He doesn't make predictions of things that have already happened as if he's writing it from earlier. He only makes predictions of things that go forward. And he says, this isn't me writing this. This is a revelation from God that I'm giving you. He uses the same style. He uses the symbols. He uses... Old Testament references. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why a lot of people struggle with Revelation nowadays, because I'm really pleased that we're going to do the, the, the essential 50 Old Testament readings, because lots of churches overlook the Old Testament. They kind of go, oh, well, that's all in the past, and we're just, we're just interested in the New Testament. And there's so much in the New Testament that refers back to the Old Testament, and we miss it when we don't know the Old Testament well enough. 
The four-winged creatures are very similar to winged creatures mentioned in Ezekiel. And there are other bits of, of what John writes about that are the, similar to things in the Old Testament that sometimes we miss. The symbols make it difficult for us, partly because we have a tendency to try and picture them rather than interpret them. So when it talks about, we had a great discussion on Tuesday night about the, the, the bit where it talks about the lamb that looked like it had been slain, and then we wandered into a discussion about zombie sheep. When you've got the lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, and you think, what does a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns look like? That's a bit freaky. It's not about what it looks like, it's about what it means. The numbers are important. The number four, the four corners of the earth. So when it talks about four creatures, the four corners of the earth, the whole earth. The number seven represents completeness or perfection. When it talks about Jesus walking through the seven lampstands, the lampstands represent the church. Seven churches. There are seven letters to seven churches. They're actual churches with actual problems, but perhaps they also represent the whole church. The number 12 and multiples of 12 are important because there were the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. Rachel and I had a long discussion about whether the 24 elders represented 12 apostles plus 12 tribes of Israel, or perhaps, perhaps not, I don't know. But then when you get 144, that's 12 times 12, so that's, that's a lot of 12s. <laughs> and then a bit like some tribes have, where the numbers only go so far, and then after a certain point, the number, they just have one number that means loads. A thousand, or anything times a thousand, just means loads. So there's chapter one. John setting out his credentials, explaining why he's writing what he's written, and sending a greeting to the seven churches. Chapters two and three are about Christ being with his church. I said before, letters to seven churches, real places, real problems, real churches. Personal letters. The number of times it says, I know you. I know how you are really good at this. I know how you're really good at that. I know how you struggle with this and with that. So, real churches, real problems. Personal letters addressing those real problems. Again, Jesus is saying, I'm with you. I know you and I'm with you. I'm among the seven lampstands. I'm among the churches. I'm with you. I know what you're good at. I know what you're not good at. And I know you need to repent of those. You need to change direction. You need to turn back to me. And if you look across the warnings to the churches and the problems they face, that probably the same sort of things that are faced by churches all around the world right now. I started trying to come up with song titles for them all and then I run out pretty quick, but the church in Ephesians, they've lost that loving feeling. They've lost their love for each other and for God. The church in Smyrna, 
church that's poor, but spiritually rich. And Jesus is warning them that there are hard times coming. Don't stop believing, he says. There's a promise there that what they'll suffer will be limited. Ten days, it says. Not specifically ten days, but of a limited time and probably not that. Something that sounds just about manageable. But there's a promise of a reward for holding out the crown of life. The church in Pergamon, which had stood up to horrific persecution, had been loyal and refused to deny God, but had fallen into false teaching and people being led astray. And God says, repent, turn back, rely on me, lean on me, perhaps. And the bit where it talks about there'll be a name on a white stone, a new name on a white stone, I'll give you an entirely new character. At the time when it was written, the the thinking was if you knew someone's name, you knew their character. And when God says, I'm going to give you a new name on a white stone, I'm going to restore your character and give you a, a pure character. The church in Thyatira, or Theatera, or I don't know how you pronounce it, that's why I didn't put it in the readings, it's not fair if I can't pronounce it, I'm not expecting other people to. They've been improving all the way along. They've been improving in their love, their faith, their service, their patient endurance. And then they've been led astray in their worship. Not having a dig at their band. (coughs) Perhaps they were more in the world. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. Perhaps they've got to of the world, sorry. The church at Sardis, which had a great reputation for being a a vibrant church, but actually they were resting on their laurels a bit. They'd got fat and lazy as a church. And God's saying, get your act together, wake up, shake yourselves. And the church at Philadelphia another small church, trying hard to work out what God wants them to do, trying hard to be faithful to God. And God says, stick at it. When I open a window, no one else can close it. If you've got the time, it's worth comparing those two, particularly Sardis and Philadelphia, because Sardis was in the former capital of Lydia, a big church full of themselves. Philadelphia was a little backwater but trying hard to be faithful to God. Small farming community. But the biggest condemnation is left for the church at Laodicea. Similar to the church at Sardis, but far worse. So completely blind to the state they're in that Jesus is outside, knocking on the door, trying to get their attention, trying to get in. It was a rich town. They were proud of their banking. And God talks about, buy gold from me. They were proud of their trading. Black woolen clothing. And God says, you need to buy white garments. They had a, a medical background as well. And, they, and, and one of the things it was famous for was treating eye problems. And God says, you need to get your own eyes sorted out, you lot. 
One of the other things that marked out the town was that the local water supply came from hot springs, quite a distance away. So by the time the water got there, it was tepid and not particularly nice. And God says, you like tepid water. Not hot, not cold. I don't want you. We move on into chapter 4, and by contrast, we've had all these struggling churches and their problems, and it's, oh, what are we going to do? And we need to turn back, and we need to repent. And then John gets a, a glimpse behind the curtain, a glimpse of heaven, the throne and the Lamb, God in control, Christ reigning. And instead of saying, I know you, repent, he's now saying, I have conquered, believe. Maybe there's a sense of, of, it be, of being a, a warning to the, to the seven churches saying, this is what you'll miss out on if you don't shake yourselves out, if you're stupid, if you don't get your act together. We get the scroll. The angel says, come and see the things that must happen. And the scroll comes and there's the seven seals on it. And only Jesus has the right to set these things that must happen in place, set them in motion. He talks about the Lion of Judah has the authority. And John looks and he sees a lamb. Because it's not Jesus' power that gives him the authority to set things in motion. It's his sacrifice. The seven eyes, this is the lamb with the seven eyes and the seven horns. The seven eyes, perfect vision. When you see something, you know it. Perfect knowledge. Seven horns, all-powerful. From chapter 6 onwards... Things get pretty scary sounding. We get into the trumpets and the, everything else. God has got to sort everything out. We live in a world with sin. We live in a fallen world. And before God can create his new kingdom on earth, he's got to eradicate evil. If you were sorting out a house, if you were decorating your house, and the wood was a bit rotten, you wouldn't just paint over it. You'd cut it out and put fresh wood in. God's doing so much more than that because he's not, he's not tarting up the earth to make it look a bit nicer. He's creating an entirely new earth. This is the bit where we get the 144,000 people getting the seal of God on them to be protected. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. This is the bit that some other people say means that there's only 144,000 allowed into heaven at all. But again, going back to the, the symbology of the numbers, 12 times 12 times 1,000, all of God's people, marked by God to say, this is one of my people.
They're protected, they're marked out, but they're not removed. There's a spiritual war going on throughout most of the rest of Revelation. There's a spiritual war going on now here. And in war there are casualties. And some of those casualties are innocent and some of those casualties are on the opposite sides. If you're fighting in a war and someone on the opposite side is taking a pot shot at you, you don't stick your head above the parapet and go, was it something I said? What have I ever done to you? You pick a side and you're on it. Soldiers are trained not to shoot people, they're trained to shoot uniforms. You don't personalise the enemy because then it's harder to, to shoot them. Satan knows he's fighting a losing battle. He knows he's not going to win. But he's going to try as hard as possible to take as many of us down with him as he, as he can when he's going. He's going down fighting and he's taking as many as he can. Usually when Satan attacks us, the injury is spiritual. Sometimes it's emotional. But we know that Christians sometimes are killed or suffer physical injury because of their faith. When the fifth seal on the scroll was opened, all the martyrs were under the throne or under the, the altar. They were in a place of honour. And they come out and they say, God, when are you going to avenge us? How long are we going to stay with these folk getting away with what they did to us? And God says, just you hang on there because there's more to still join you. God knows that some of us in the global context might have to suffer death for him. We go back to that church at Smyrna that were warned that they would face 10 days of hard times. But for the people that held on, for the ones that didn't lose the faith, there would be a crown of glory. There are rewards for those who endure. It talks about in the final judgment, if your name's in the book of life, then that's, that's all that matters. And it reminded me of some teaching we had at Creation Fest when I was there last summer about the process of salvation. And I thought I would share that with you. Because there's kind of three stages. There was a trend that's kind of thankfully grown out now, I think, in churches, perhaps more so in America, of people walking up to other people going, Are you saved? Are you saved, sir? Are you saved, ma'am? And it's kind of like, well, I am, but I'm still being. I suppose it's a bit like Baywatch when they, <laughs> there you go, that got your attention. When they go legging it out into the water with that funny float thing and they catch the person who's drowning and they've caught them, so they're safe. But they've still got to drag them back to the shore where they'll be properly safe. So as they're dragging them back, this. They're saved, but they're still being saved. When you become a Christian, when you accept Jesus' sacrifice for your life, you are 
justified. You're put right with God, which I like because in, in Word you can justify things to the left, you can justify things in the middle, and you can justify them to the right. So when, you, when all your text is put right, it's been justified. That's how I remember it. It probably doesn't help the rest of you. Some people say it's just as if I'd never sinned. Actually, it's more like just as if I always did right. You accept the righteousness that Jesus has that none of us can earn. And when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness. When God looks at any one of us, he sees Jesus' righteousness. None of us is any more or less righteous than anyone else if we've accepted Jesus' righteousness. And your name goes in the book of life. So, Pamela Anderson, or the other fella, what's his name? The Hoff, has got to you with his orange float, and you're holding on to the orange float, and you are saved. But you're still two miles offshore, because you're a good swimmer, up until the point when you got cramp. So you have to be saved, sanctified, made holy by God, and it's a process. And you have to cooperate with God and the Holy Spirit. And some people cooperate more fully than others. Some people get justified right on the point of death, perhaps. The whole kind of Christian dilemma of what if, what if you get to heaven and Hitler's there because he made a deathbed confession? no more or less righteous than you if he did. But if he did, he's missed out on a lifetime of sanctification, of growing closer to God, of being made holy by God, of cooperating with God. And the final bit is glorification. And that's the bit that happens in heaven. When you get revealed as God's final masterpiece. When you are free from sin. We're all in the middle bit. If we've accepted Jesus. Once you're justified, you're in that middle bit of being swum back to shore. Before you get to the shore, the heavenly shore. And you're glorified. I was trying to think of a way to explain it other than being dragged to the shore by the Hoff or Pam Anderson. And perhaps it's a bit like a party in a nightclub. And you see it on films or whatever or, or in real life, perhaps. Craig. You're out and there's a big queue to get into the nightclub and the bouncer's standing there with a list. Your name's not down, you're not coming in. I don't think there's a no denim sign at heaven, but you never know. And there's a queue of people. And then someone that the bouncer knows really well comes wandering to the front of the queue. All right, mate. And the bouncer goes, hey, Fred, in you come. Got the VIP lounge for you. (coughs) 
Bible talks about running the race to completion. Well done, good and faithful servant. The martyrs under the altar. I don't know. I promise you, I don't know. I've prayed hard about this. God might reveal something different. And I apologize if, if, if it upsets you or whatever, but I think there are rewards in heaven for people who are faithful to God through their life. And there might be a queue of people who've accepted God at the very last minute and are justified but not very sanctified. And they'll all get in because the name's on the list. But hopefully when you get there, God will say, Mr. T, so glad you're here. Edna Perrett, brilliant, been waiting for you. Not like that. (laughs) That was a bad analogy. I'm so pleased to see you. Mr. Parker, I knew you'd be here soon. There are rewards in heaven for people who love God. It's not a case of saying, do you know what, I think I'll just live the life I like and then at the last minute I'll just accept God and that'll be fine and I'll be in heaven like everybody else. Yes, you will. But you might not get some of the rewards that other people in heaven will get. Moving on to less controversial territory. We have now spanned the whole of the Bible. Well, we haven't quite because we've got to read the Old Testament yet. But the Old Testament starts, the story of God's creation starts in Genesis. Way back, we don't know when, with a perfect garden. And sin enters in. And Revelation tells us that the world as we know it will end. We don't know when. There's a place in heaven for anyone who wants it. But it's a time-limited offer. Revelation shows us God ain't just going to sit there forever and wait and wait and wait and wait. There will come a time when he says, right, it's time to sort this out. The angel says, these are the things that must happen. All the scary bits in Revelation are the things that must happen for God to get rid of evil and to bring the new Jerusalem to earth where we will live with him for all of eternity. If you disagree with the middle bit, that's fine. Just remember the end bit. God will sort it all out. God will eradicate evil and we will be in heaven with him for eternity. 